Welcome to Driving the Deal, a podcast that brings you into conversations with key figures from across healthcare private equity. My name is Chris Worling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life sciences deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's private equity practice. And I'm Brian Fortin, head of the Farragut Square Group, which is now part of the McDermott Plus consulting family. Our fabulous team performs regulatory and reimbursement diligence across the healthcare payment landscape. Today, we're going to be walking through what we're calling the month of JP Morgan, as everyone has been meeting virtually over the last few weeks to map out the year ahead for what should be another busy year of healthcare deals. Today, we're excited to be joined by Holly Stokes, one of Farragut Square's senior analyst and a veteran of many healthcare deals across the provider continuum. So Chris, before we start talking about our forecast for healthcare deals for this coming year, thought we should set the table doing a quick review of last year's record deal flow. It's no secret that last year was a whirlwind of transactions just on globally across the world. There were record number of overall M&A transactions within the U.S., in particular, was extremely busy for the private equity industry. Total deal value across all sectors eclipsed a trillion dollars. Within healthcare, we saw 77.5 billion transactions in 2021, which is really a decade-long record and an all-time high. That really, the deal market was active across all sectors. We saw a lot of activity in provider services, home health, hospice, practice management was extremely active. But the big winner for 2021 was really health IT. It saw by far the largest increase in deal volume and deal value, obviously driven by some of the post-COVID trends, the need to continue to digitize and revolutionize healthcare industry with information technology was top of mind for investors. Brian, from your perspective, healthcare deal numbers, what was driving that increase from your perspective? The numbers were amazing. First off, I mean, you know, we since we've been tracking deals when Farragut first started, you know, there was 238 healthcare deals back in 2011. And a decade later, we're up to 733. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is we're seeing a lot of add-on plays and also a lot of consolidation. You know, when you look ahead, you know that there are a lot of healthcare sectors that still are not remotely consolidated, but certainly with uh, acquiring platforms, they're continuing to to add on to those. And there's still a lot of room to run, but, you know, definitely consolidation plays, I think, are driving a lot of this movement. Yeah, same from my perspective. That's something that the private equity industry in particular has seen about the healthcare identified. There's just much more room for bringing together multiple providers, both in the same geography and in diverse geographies to increase the efficiency of the services that are provided. So, that's really what I think is behind the number of deals that were increased. So it's been fascinating. And as we'll discuss in a few minutes, it looks to continue in 2022. Brian, for 2021, what were some of the big picture things that you were getting questions on from clients about their transactions? So last year saw a little bit of a difference from previous years, but there, there has been a remarkable consistency for the last few. So, you know, pretty much on any given year, you know, we're still seeing well between a quarter and a third of deals are going to fall in various uh, providers that make up the physician practice management space. Next biggest sector, which 
varies. This one varies more year by year, but you know, the, certainly in 2021, the next biggest sector for us was in the behavioral health space, which you know can encompass addiction treatment or eating disorders or even just you know straight up you know outpatient mental health or psychiatry uh, or even with a telehealth component. And then the last big space is is also consistent and doesn't change much year to year, and that is you know we've seen a lot of activity in the post acute universe, which you know, could encompass things ranging from outpatient therapy to hospice care or home health, you know, either skilled under Medicare or unskilled under Medicaid. And then, you know, the rest of the the rest of the list kind of ranges from year to year. You know, there will be a little bit of labs mixed in, a little bit of dental. Dental is very consistent and you know, maybe some DME and digital health and, and some other areas, you know, even including under places like workers comp. Now, on our end, the, the typical thrust of, of our diligence is always going to be, you know, starting with reimbursement forecasting. If you look at last year, the next level of questions are going to be things such as what, what is Washington's sympathy level towards healthcare providers as the pandemic eases? Because obviously, starting in 2020, there are a lot of flexibilities in terms of what you can bill and how you get reimbursed for it that are tied to the public health emergency. So forecasting where that is going is an important piece. Obviously, we had a new Washington in 2021. So, you know, a top question was, now that there was all Democratic control of Washington, what was Washington capable of doing on issues such as pricing or tax policy was a big one, or healthcare reimbursement in general? Equally important uh, on our end is always going to be how states are approaching the same or similar issues, such as the pandemic and drug pricing and, and other things. And then I think most important of all is how the commercial payers are viewing all of these and how they're covering and reimbursing services. Because uh, as we often note with clients, commercial payers really control a lot of things in the healthcare sphere these days. You know, we're pushing towards one out of every two Medicare beneficiaries being covered by commercial care. In Medicaid, somewhere between 75 and 80% of lives are managed by commercial payers. And then, of course, you have you know the huge employer market and the exchanges as well. Yeah. And from my perspective, 2021, we were getting calls with a variety of the same questions from clients. It started out really with how do we manage COVID adjusting 2020, really. And so clients took a couple different views on that. Some were just adjusting the underlying financials, the revenue or EBITDA to either bring in more caseload or in the case of urgent care uh, and providers that benefited from COVID, uh, you know, back out potential caseload that won't be there going forward. And another approach that we work closely with clients on was to figure out some sort of bridge in the transaction structure. So that may be an earnout, a holdback, or something in the structure of equity that was brought together to be able to just you know patch over that uncertainty which 2020 brought to the financials. So you know the first half of 2021 in particular, we were very busy working with clients to structure those to keep deals on track. In addition to structuring those COVID adjustments, it was a unique year in that the volume of transactions really required our clients to move very fast. And so yeah. uh, we saw more processes than ever where 
we were working with clients that didn't have exclusivity on an asset that they were bidding on. So we were doing more work early in the process to try to get a leg up on other bidders. And our clients that had conviction about certain areas were really doing a lot of work up front. Brian, I assume you saw the same thing with clients engaging Farragut Square for reimbursement outlook and other work early in the process. That's correct. Yeah, I think everybody, you know, knowing that there were a lot of processes and they were moving very fast. I mean, people, I think, were prioritizing uh, kind of front loading their their channel checks on issues they cared about. And then the, the last thing that st- sticks out to me about 2021 is in the last quarter, continuing through the first month of 2022, is the challenges in getting rep and warranty insurance for certain types of healthcare assets. We've been in close contact with all of the major brokers. And what we saw was some of the underwriters for representation and warranty insurance just write their limits in the sector by mid-year. <laughs> so That's interesting. Uh, yeah. So uh, rep and warranty insurers kind of manage their portfolio of risk, just like any other portfolio manager would. And they have a certain amount of coverage that they want to write in healthcare sometimes even divided further with subsectors within healthcare, pharma services being a little bit different from practice management. And so what we started to hear in August and September was that some of the underwriters had left the market due to just tapping out. Other underwriters had some concern about the space. There was a number of larger indemnity claims that hit some of the large underwriters coming out of healthcare services. So some just Although they weren't necessarily tapped out from a financial perspective, they had some concerns about writing in the space and weren't didn't want to put new policies out. That's been something that we had to deal with to get deals closed in the fourth quarter, uh, particularly in the lower middle market yeah. size transactions. So deals that were under $100 million in transaction value where you were trying to get a policy for 10 to $15 million written it became unavailable. So had to go back to the old fashioned indemnity escrow and other types of things for potential liabilities. And I just note maybe one other piece on rep and warranty insurance was that the underwriters in 2021 really kicked it up a notch on the scope and the depth of diligence they were providing. You know, really 180 from a year or two prior where their diligence was really just an overread of what the acquiring law firm had previously done. And they didn't engage much with us about, you know, follow ups. By the end of 2021, we were getting, you know, 11 to 12 page follow up lists in-depth questions, follow-up calls, and things like that to get coverage placed. It's definitely a trend that we're going to watch going into 2022 as this continues, and we want to have rep and warranty coverage available as it's you know, very favorable for sellers and convenient product for buyers. So it was certainly an interesting year, Brian. It's interesting. So, you know, if last year was a record year for healthcare and PE deals, the question that we're getting is, you know, what does that mean for this year? You know, has everybody spent or are there more opportunities to come? Um, your mention of of the rep and warranty issue, I think, is important because, 
you know, last year, despite being a record year, was a little weird. So what we saw was a much bigger Q2 than usual and a pretty massive Q3. And then Q4, for, for I think the reason that you brought up and a couple of others, you know, actually was not as busy as it was in, in like 2020 or especially 2019. And it seemed to me from a lot of our, our banker friends that, you know, a lot of deals were actually, you know, sort of held back toward the end of the year. You know, a couple of reasons that people mentioned was just one, you know, people had been approaching the year that they were afraid that there was going to be, you know, huge changes in tax policy. So that was an incentive to, you know, get something done. But, you know, as you got into Q4, people started to fear the pending tax changes a lot less. You know, the other reason, of course, that I think is relevant is that a lot of bankers pretty much had had more than hit their forecasted target deals for the year. Their incentive to like keep clocking in more ones, uh, I, I think, started to abate a little bit. Yeah, we, we saw the same thing on, on the legal side is that just especially the last month or two of the fourth quarter was not nearly as busy as the second and third. For I, I agree. The reasons you said, I, I was working with a number of sellers that were seeking private equity partners and once it became clear that Build Back Better was not going to go anywhere and was not going to contain massive tax changes from a capital gains perspective, then those sellers started to say, okay, let me step back. I don't want to rush through this over the holidays between November and, and December, and I'm going to you know, take my time and launch a thorough process in the first quarter of next year. So what do you think of this theme? I, you know, so far... In our conversations with people, the phrase that keeps coming up a lot as a theme this year is that there's a lot of dry powder. Do you agree? Do we agree with this? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but from a fundraising perspective, the last two years have been phenomenal for our fund clients it, across strategies too, across growth, equity, buyout, and venture you know, there's just really great excitement about the private equity product from limited partners, right? Institutions are looking to put, allocate more to private equity. Family offices are a rising player in the private equity space. So our private equity colleagues and friends are, are getting a very significant commitments. And the interesting thing for me, like thinking about what deal market is going to look like this year and next is that, you know, the Fund managers really need to put that committed capital to work. And so some people say, well, interest rates are going to go up in 2022. Isn't that going to slow down private equity investment? Uh, it may a tad, but really, I, I think regardless of interest rates, you know, there's money that needs to contractually be put to work. <laughs> I'm not saying, suggesting that people are going to be making unwise investments in 2022, but there may be some lower return profiles if the, the rates on debt are a bit higher. And that just is what it is. They're going to go forward with transactions. Yeah. It's like the parable of the talents, right? The, the one thing you don't want to do is bury, bury your new funds in the backyard. Right. So I agree with that. I think what we're all, we continue to hear and, and um, you know, certainly the indications of interest coming in the door is that this is going to be a very busy year. If not, if it doesn't meet or exceed last year's number, it, it's still going to come in, uh, you know, with a lot of deals. So this is a good, good opportunity to 
pull Holly in. Thanks for having me. You know, Holly, it's interesting. The more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Because, you know, when I kind of go through the a lot of the inbound interest, a lot of the areas still cover areas that have been very busy for us for the last two or three years. What do you think? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, the big buckets that we're getting deal questions on for this coming year are still PPM, post-acute, and behavioral health. And we're also seeing some more around digital health. That makes sense. So let's break that down for the rest of the show. Let's start off with, with the PPMs. PPMs, obviously, you know, physician practice management encompasses an enormous number of specialties. So maybe break that down and see, you know, which ones do you think are going to be the most interesting this year? Yeah, absolutely. So we are still really liking gastroenterology, ophthalmology, and dermatology. We're also seeing um, more interest, but also a lot of moving parts in cardiology and vascular surgery. And then we're seeing kind of a return to interest for orthopedics. So those are the big ones that I'm watching. Chris, that'll keep you busy, right? Orthopedic deals are usually a bit more complicated than some of the other ones. They are a lawyer's dream. <laughs> the, the ancillary streams, uh, the, the surgery center ownership structures, the MRI and PT that they're usually involved in, as well as their deep hospital relationships make those deals challenging to get across the finish line. They can be, I think they can be very rewarding. I don't want to scare anyone off. I think it's an industry that needs capital investment. It needs leadership, particularly as some of the senior orthopedic surgeons that built these large groups start to think about retirement. I think it's a, a lot of opportunity in the space, but it, they're definitely complex businesses. Holly, so what are the key questions you're getting? I mean, if they if they changed in sort of direction at all, or is it still kind of a similar reimbursement or coverage forecast for some of these? So for gastroenterology, we continue to view it as stable ever since that 2016 code restructuring. We're also seeing the space is really benefiting from some high utilization of evaluation and management codes, which CMS increased reimbursement for in 2021. And we're also seeing that there could be some tailwinds through 2030 as CMS closes the colonoscopy loophole which we believe could help encourage patient access and increase some utilization. And on ophthalmology, is it still just cataract surgery and how that's going, or are there other areas of interest? So cataract surgery is still a big diligence question for us. A lot of question on, is there going to be more scrutiny? Are we going to see a return to reimbursement pressure that we saw a few years ago? We are definitely watching the space. One thing that did come up in 2022 rulemaking was a question around how interest service time between more traditional cataract codes does deviate from newer cataract codes. And accordingly, the RUC is going to re-review those in the near term. We do think there could be some modest pressure because there is that discrepancy, but that's really just accounting for one, physicians getting better and better at it, and two, technology increasing. And we don't think it would be at the same amount of pressure that we saw three years ago, four years ago. And that's, you know, to highlight this, this discrepancy is a two-minute inter-service time. So it's not this big headwind like we saw before. We also continue to see a lot of questions around retinol drugs. You know, ILEA and Lucentis are coming off patents biosimilars are going to be entering the market in the next few years. And we do see some market pressure from this, but this could be softer than what we've seen in other biologic markets. And that's because 
the retinal space in the U.S. already has an off-label generic Avastin operating, and that could soften the pressure relative to what you saw for gastroenterology with Remicade, where it was a much more severe pricing pressure. Yeah, it seems like we're a lot more stable in our view of the revolution of retinol as compared to sometimes people fearing a lot of potential changes in drug pricing. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is you look at these proposals coming out of Congress, and most of them wouldn't impact the space at all because they do have those biosimilars entering in the next few years because they aren't seeing high annual increases in the average sales price, they're not really the big target for Congress. So what about cardiology? That's kind of a new entrant uh, into the sweepstakes. What's interesting in that space? Yeah, we are seeing a ton of interest in cardiology space as PE climbs up the acuity ladder. And there's really a big eye to cardio-specific ASCs. One area in the space that is a bit in flux are the revascularization code family. Historically, those codes were actually reimbursed at higher rates in the OBL setting than the ASC setting, but that's attracted a lot of scrutiny from CMS. And that coupled with clinical labor pricing that's going through from CMS through 2025 is shifting the delta so that ASCs are starting to be reimbursed at a higher rate for those codes, and OBLs are starting to be reimbursed at a lower rate. And this, in turn, is creating a lot of conversation around, is it right to pursue an ASC-OBL hybrid model? Uh, and, and when you say OBL, Holly, you're, you're talking about office-based cath labs, correct? Yes, that's correct. And those are reimbursed at the clinic rate. Brian and Holly, we saw a large number of clients you know, show deep interest in post-acute and home health last year. Uh, have you been seeing the same and you think that's going to continue? No, that's right. I mean, I, I think that's, that has been a consistent and very busy space for several years now for a couple of, of reasons. You know, one is if you look at, at hospice, you know, there's a lot of interest in whether that will be folded into something like the Medicare Advantage program and if and when that would happen, what that would mean. You know, we certainly do a lot of work with commercial payers around that. But when you look at just the fee-for-service side, uh, hospice has shown a lot of stability for you know more than five years now because CMS, the Medicare agency, did make reforms to the space, but those, you know, they've been done with those for a while. I don't anticipate a huge new wave of reform coming up. You know, they were they were pretty mild, and I think people were able to calibrate those. On the home health side, generally, you have a lot of positive sort of upswell. You've got some tailwinds. You know, you do have a, obviously, in addition to just a rising volume of seniors, you have a rising or consistent interest in pushing post-procedural services out to the lowest cost and the home-based setting. So for years now, we've witnessed both Medicare Advantage and participants in some of these large bundled payment demonstrations continue to cut down on the number of institutional recovery days in either a SNF or inpatient rehab, and they're moving those into the home health setting. Now, in skilled home health, the other thing, too, is they've undergone a payment system overhaul. You know, generally, that's prioritized higher payment for kind of more intensive, higher acuity services, but it still pays well for things like therapy. So, you know, you haven't seen a major diminution of the amount of therapy services provided in home health. Now, that comes with a cautionary note. You know, home health is very, very hot. And what we've seen is, you know, if you go back to 2012, I mean, home health was, there wasn't a lot of interest in getting in, but it was very easy to get in because you could acquire home health assets at a an amazing value multiple. Fast forward to now, home health is a good space and it's also trading at very, very rich multiples. Um, and that 
requires people to kind of, you know, think carefully as they move ahead. So they're making sure that, you know, they are, you know, still getting good value for it because there's a number of sort of potential headwinds on the horizon. First one is that you have a behavioral adjustment in that system that's there by law, the way that uh, the PDGM, as it's called, Payment System for Home Health is structured, there will be a behavioral adjustment. And if you follow CMS's data and thinking on it, that adjustment keeps growing. So CMS is poised to throw something out there that might double digits or a little more than that. That I believe the industry will weather that storm and find a way to structure it in a way they can live with. But that is a headwind they're going to have to manage. The second one is just a headwind that all Medicare fee-for-service providers are likely going to have to face in in the coming three, three, four years. And that is that Congress has, for the last handful of years, basically not taken action on repeated warnings from the Medicare trustees that they need to fix an impending trust fund crisis. Inflation is not going to lower that crisis. It's going to accelerate it. So you're already seeing that in that near term providers are getting pretty good inflationary updates. This last rulemaking cycle is an indication that's going to continue. But it also means the trustees are probably going to lower the life of the Medicare trust funds by more than they have in the past. So Congress coming in, the Congress that comes in in 2023, an odd numbered year, which is a good year to make Medicare policy changes because you've got a long time for the voters to not be angry about it. Odds are they're going to have to also dial down inflationary updates for everybody. So home health needs to be prepared for that. The one space in post-acute that, I'll, that I will close with that I think, you know, definitely we saw less activity on in the last year were things where you were providers that were selling services into skilled nursing. So, you know, for example, some of the contract therapy providers, there just didn't see a lot of activity out there. And, you know, I, I think anything involving facilities and COVID tended to dampen enthusiasm for the near term. So with that, Holly, why don't we talk about behavioral? Because that fluctuates year on year. But, uh, you know, I think both last year and this year, we're seeing a heightened interest in returning to that space in force. Yeah. And it's really been a big focus on SUDS for us. So the PHE has, of course, taken a huge mental health toll on people. And we're seeing the initial data suggest a real spike in opioid use disorders, with overdose deaths rising by about 30% from 2019 to 2020. Really a clear need for providers in this space. And we're seeing states and the federal government both put in more funding to address this and look at shifting regulations or creating more innovative models. And then what about just straight up behavioral, like outpatient? That seems to be another area of interest. Yeah, we've definitely seen some interest in outpatient behavioral. That's one area that both we see Medicare and Medicaid's focusing on. And and you mentioned something about, you know, of all the COVID funding that's gone out the door, there's definitely been some targeted efforts in the behavioral space that, you know, generate a lot of interest. You had mentioned, uh, was it mobile crisis centers? Yes. So that is one of the new initiatives from the American Rescue Plan, where they are providing an enhanced FMAP at 85% for crisis intervention services, where states can use their Medicaid programs to dispatch mobile teams to help someone with either a sud crisis or a different mental health crisis when they are in a non-facility setting and really try to take the care to them. Well, that's great. I'll I'll cross market here right now by noting that uh, that Farragut, you had participated in a Farragut webinar that uh, just came out with a number of behavioral executives where you dove into that 
uh, a little further. One thing that, that is interesting in all this behavioral universe is California keeps coming up. I wonder if you could kind of walk us through why is California in the spotlight? California has been a real leader in creating some of the most innovative Medicaid programs, and they've been that way consistently. You know, in 2015, they were the first state to obtain federal approval for a Section 1115 waiver where the state was allowing counties to offer expanded levels of service via a managed care plan. And now this year, California's got its new demonstration renewed with CMS greenlighting the state's plan to expand that. So SUD treatment services are now a permanent part of Medi-Cal's managed care system. And the state's expanding services to include reimbursement for peer support groups, or for contingency management. And that's something that Farragut's actually delving deeper into in a recent note that you should look out for. Oh, that's great. Well, that brings us to another area that honestly, Chris, is a bit of a blanket term. We get people calling in and they often ask kind of an opening question, are you guys well-versed in digital health? Uh, <laughs> which as you know, can can cover a lot of grounds. I know that on your end, uh, you know, you're, you're heavily involved. The firm has a whole practice group that's devoted to digital health. So you know, walk us through kind of this, this new focus area in the deal landscape. It is such a broad but important area uh, where, you know, 2021 saw a massive investment, particularly in early stage solutions. But the other trend we saw in digital health in 2021 and, and see continuing into 2022 is digital health as an add-on to existing healthcare services platforms. And I agree, Brian, it's a, it's a broad term, but I think in general, we think of it as connecting with patients digitally that can be either through a remote patient visit or through remote patient monitoring are the two of the primary areas where we saw a lot of existing healthcare services companies add on digital health really driven obviously by the pandemic and the fact that patients couldn't get physically to offices or didn't want to get to the offices. So digital health stepped into the void. The big question now, Howie, is I know that Medicare came out with a variety of, you know, telehealth, digital health flexibilities for providers. You know, do you do you see some of those going away in 2022? Yeah, that is the big question we keep getting. So many of these flexibilities are tied to the PHE, meaning that they would go away when the PHE ends. Some of those flexibilities are site of service. So being able to receive care from your home or the beneficiary being able to receive care if they are in an urban rather than rural environment. Those are things that we see a lot of Congress taking an interest in, potentially trying to create legislation that would allow for permanent expansion. One area where we see a bit more of an uphill battle is the question of payment parity. Right now, those services are being reimbursed at the same rate as if they were provided in person. Historically, Congress has been pretty heavily against this, worrying about how much cost that would add. Is there going to be overutilization? Is there going to be fraud? And those are things that are going to become a real issue when the PHE subsides and when we need to decide what are we reimbursing and at what rate. I, it, it will certainly be an area to watch this year. I think regardless, though, our clients are going to continue to be very enthusiastic about it. it. Really, what it comes down to is that patients are going to demand these types of solutions. Look to providers that have those solutions. Brian? Well, it is interesting. You know, I, I had assumed we were going to see a big influx of funds in the digital space 
you know, going back 10 years or so to kind of the big rescue plan in 2009, you know, it, it really buried within that was this mandate that all health records go digital. So, you know, we saw kind of a big investment wave in, you know, first digitizing health records, you know, then sort of the natural follow on of that was figuring out how to more organize those and, and, you know, mine that data for something useful translates into care patterns or provision of services. But now, Holly, lately, there have been a number of changes in the last, like, I'd say, th- what, three years, kind of tying into using technology to monitor patients remotely or it's RPM space. So maybe walk us through why that's been kind of a burgeoning area of interest. It goes right back into what you're saying of how do we use data to actually help patient care before it becomes a big issue. So we're seeing a huge tailwind for can you use a remote patient monitoring device to detect issues and risks early on? Can you tie it into value-based care? Can you use it in preventive care or for people with chronic conditions to really help their physicians work with them and create solutions before it becomes a bigger health issue? Yeah. And they, I mean, they really kind of, you know, at least Medicare has put some money behind that as well. So seeing what some new new RPM codes into the system at fairly decent reimbursement. And even before the pandemic, CMS started creating more codes. And with the pandemic, we've seen those reimbursement rates go up. So Holly, now that we've seen a lot of activity in RPM, I guess the other thing that we do talk to people a lot about is that some of the Medicare sponsored telehealth flexibilities are likely to expire in, in places, you know, other than things like telepsychiatry. But that doesn't mean that I think digital health is going to slow down a little bit. What are you seeing on adoption of this next wave of sort of consumer focused tech? Yeah, I think when you think about digital health, it is a huge bucket. So you think about three different kinds of digital health. Is it serving the patient? Is it serving the provider? Or is it serving the payer? And I think right now there's some concerns about things going away that might be serving the patient, but that doesn't mean that there aren't still a ton of avenues, investment and opportunity when you're serving the payer, you're making things easier. When you're serving the provider, maybe you're working on data interoperability. Those are things we're still going to keep seeing a lot of investment in. Thanks, Holly. This was a great discussion. There certainly is a lot to look forward to from a regulatory and deal perspective in 2022. Brian and I look forward to having you join us on the podcast again soon. We have a number of interesting topics for healthcare private equity investors planned for upcoming episodes. So make sure to subscribe to the McDermott Health Channel so you don't miss future episodes. You can also learn more about McDermott's private equity practice by visiting mwe.com forward slash PE. Brian? Thanks again. Always a pleasure. I look forward to more banter this year. We're going to be covering some great topics ranging from deeper dives into specific deal areas to top five things to consider when trying to structure deals on certain practices. We'll be having a recurring cast of guests from the banking world and also executives of of various healthcare companies to catch up on what they've been doing. And we hope you'll all join us because it should be highly entertaining and informative journey. As we say goodbye today, I would also say if you uh, want to learn more about the Farragut Square Group, please visit our website at farragutsquaregroup.com. And we hope you'll join us again for our next episode. Thank you. 
This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.